Hello and welcome back to Skeologians and our book study project as we go through Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Today we are going to finish up chapter 1 talking about biblical femininity and then we are going to um, do an overview of the, the vision of biblical complementarity and finally finish with um, a challenge for men and women. So that is what we have on tap for the show today. We hope you enjoy. Some special edition 5mm Red Creek Scrapers for special people. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. Like you. Brooksy, if I want to explain it to you, I would. You're doing the edge of the ski, use the end of the scraper so you don't dull the scraping surface. No! Do it like that so I don't have to get angry. All right, today we are going to be talking about how to respond when your daughter comes up to you and says, Mom, Dad, what makes a woman a woman and not a man? Um, You need to know how to respond to that. You need to know how to raise up your young daughters to be women of God and to have biblical mature biblical femininity and what does that actually mean so the first part of this chapter if you are trying to catch up uh we had those previous episodes where we talked about biblical masculinity and um the definition there and it took us a little while to to get through it and i think we'll be able to hopefully get through biblical femininity today on the show so let's read the definition just for clarification sake. Of course, this this whole book study will go much better for you, I think, if you have the actual book. They do a better job of saying these things, and sometimes my summaries are probably more wordy anyway, but hey, I thought it'd be helpful to do something, some sort of ministry, and sharing this content. So that's kind of the goal of the show, but if it feels a little bit like, wait, what What did they say there? I, I, I didn't really get that. Well, this is being done as if you have also read this chapter as well, and we're kind of pulling out some talking points. The definition is of biblical femininity. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. And that the first line of this section of the chapter, he opens by saying, a significant aspect of femininity is how a woman responds to the pattern of initiatives established by mature masculinity. He compares it to a ballet dancer and sort of says in the same way that the moves of one ballet dancer would be implied if you describe the moves of the other, such is the way that mature womanhood relates to mature manhood. And the more I've kind of contemplated some of this material and thought about it, I think what I've kind of come to realize with mature womanhood, I think I'm going to use that word womanhood instead of femininity, it's hard to say, uh, is they have to be really grounded in biblical truth because what makes a mature woman is someone who can identify mature masculinity that is worthy to join in that ballet dance with so they uh you know a significant aspect of their maturity is is really just how much they know about god and the bible to be you know as broadly spoken as possible because when they know their standard well they can apply that standard and uh out in the world to determine mature masculinity and when they when they see that they know how to respond to that they want to respond to that they want to they want to respond in um within god's purpose for creation and um that that's really where the true freeing sense comes is their uh, well we'll get to that in a second but but basically just keep that in mind is that i i do feel like whereas on the men's side it's almost like here's sort of outlined this is what it means to be a biblical man there's these traits right leadership that looks like this uh protection that looks like this provision that looks like this very specific biblical definitions for those things and that exists in the definition of womanhood as well but a huge component of those are in response to biblical manhood well if you can't identify what biblical manhood is 
then you're going to be starting off on the wrong foot to begin with. And so a huge, huge element, I think, when we think about how we're applying this directly, raising young, young girls, is making sure that their anchor is very secure in the Bible, in the knowledge that's present in the Bible. I think that's, that. I mean, that's obviously critical for the man as well, because the component of leadership that they have, we talked about that, we stress that a lot, that that independent biblical study for a man to know how to lead, because they are responsible for, you know, the moral guidance of the entire family. So they have to be set in the right direction themselves. But think about how critical that is on an individual level for a woman as well, because they're they're very dependent upon their standard, the Bible, their knowledge of the standard, the Bible, in order to determine what biblical manhood looks like in order that they might respond to it. And um, it's not, it is not as if, um, like we mentioned before too, I think, that well, a man can be a uh, can mature onto mature masculinity without a woman, but a woman really needs that man because they need him to respond to. That's not true, and you can see that embedded in this definition. He brings up the word. He uses the word disposition, and I'll quickly we'll, we'll break down each of these phrases. Right? Okay. So the beginning at the heart of that's the same thing as at the heart of for the male definition, meaning it's not exhaustive. Uh, but it's certainly not less. Mature femininity, this is very much the same as males as well. We're not talking about the distortion, distorted secular view. We are talking about moving towards all of these traits as being what is mature. Um, God's original design, not those distortions. It refers not to what sin has made of womanhood or what popular opinion makes of it, but what God has defined it as, what God has willed is best. All right, so then what is mature womanhood? It starts, the first phrase, a freeing disposition. And this disposition is important because it's not just a set of behaviors. It's going to perhaps look differently depending on the situation. Um, It's a disposition, though, to yield to a husband's authority and an inclination to follow his leadership. It's not absolute, and that's why it's important. It, he says, you know, a woman is not going to follow her husband's leadership into sin. She's not going to steal with him, get drunk with him, save her pornography with him, develop deceptive schemes, schemes with him. Um, and so even if in those moments, and this, again, you can start to sense the idea of why it would be so important to have this standard of what's right and wrong embedded um, in mature womanhood, but, you know, the Christian wife might have to stand against the husband who is trying to pull her into sin in that way, but she can still have a spirit of submission, the disposition to yield. And how he explains that is essentially, it doesn't please her to resist his will. He, she, Because she has a disposition to do this, she really desires him to repent of that sin and to lead in righteousness because she wants to um, in her disposition wants to honor him and follow his leadership because she knows that's going to produce harmony. And it, this is experienced as freeing. So it's a freeing disposition. Why? Why is it freeing? Well, it's freeing because it's grounded in truth. And this is a confusing topic because most people think freeing means just simply the ability to... Um, have an unrestrained license or an an independence, a complete independence to make decisions that we absolutely want to do. And in a sense, if we just describe, describe freedom as doing what we want to do, then in a sense that can be true even in the biblical sense. But the difference is the mature person who has moved towards mature biblical definitions of womanhood, what they desire also aligns with God's good design. And so what they desire is because they have moved towards, they, they, well, they, haven't, they haven't tried to um, seek freedom in the way Piper says, they haven't tried to seek freedom by bending reality to fit their desires. They've been seeking to be transformed by the renewing of their desires to fit in with God's perfect will. He mentions Romans 12, 12. And so by being changed by God's spirit 
um, th- what they want to do also conforms to the design of God, and it leads to this life of pleasure, harmony, and glory to him. Okay, so it is experienced as freeing, even though it's not it's it's not just bending to the human sinful nature it's it is trying to conform to god's nature which is why you're a christian you know so free in the sense of doing what we want to do yes but what we want to do is constantly being conformed to god's um mind into the to god's nature to who jesus is that is why sanctification is so important in this step so it's not as if the woman approaches this and goes, this isn't freeing at all. I'd rather do this and be sort of fully autonomous, I guess, is a misuse of the word perhaps. But it's not as if that. They, they, they are, they, it is experienced as freeing because it's, a, it's in accordance with truth. The example he gives here is jumping out of a parachute. He sort of gives two, two characters, right? One who jumps out of a parachute with a parachute, or jumps out of an airplane with a parachute. One jumps out of an airplane without one. And he sort of mentions how the one without the parachute is totally free. They're unencumbered by this uh, heavy thing on their back. But they are in complete bondage to gravity and the, the, the fact that that bondage is going to result in calamity. So you can think about the same way someone in a relationship, if they're going against God's design, sure, they're free to do what they want, and they are going to please their sinful sinful nature, their sinful desires, and, and let that be the compass for their free choices. But what are they in bondage to? They're in bondage to the calamity that that brings. The person who follows God's design feels free because of the harmony that, they, that it produces and results. They're not in bondage to that, the calamity and, and the results of that. And an important just final point on that is he says, therefore, true freedom is not giving in to our every impulse. And that's an important point, I think, when we, he applies it just briefly to um, homosexuality and how some people in today's world would say, well, I think true freedom for um, the lesbian would be to allow them to engage in their sexual desires, that the relational, uh, the marriage relationship in that in that way, and what they are ignoring there is the bondage to the sinful consequences that that will bring. That's not true freedom, um, because it's not following God's perfect design. They're ignoring that, um, and so freedom to choose what you want. I think, well, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I'm not really sure exactly how I would uh, approach this discussion if someone sort of posed that question to me, but I think I would sort of say, well, let's let's be clear on what freedom is, you know, because if you're saying, well, you're not really free because you have to just do what God says you have to do, but I can do what I want to do. What I think I would challenge them by is by saying, well, actually, freedom really is just being able to choose what you want. And when I'm conformed to the mind of Christ constantly, what I want to do conforms to his will. That's true freedom um, because it's, it's, it's what the creator has in mind. And I'm not in bondage to this, the consequences of making sinful choices. And by sinful, I mean going contrary to God's design. And I, I, I preface those definitions a lot because I think in conversation with, these, with the unbeliever, even using words like sin don't really make sense in their worldview either. We have to be careful to know that sin, you know, going against what, something that does not please God. Okay, and so now we go on to the next, the next one. It's kind of the three primary roles. The man had three roles too. Remember, lead, protect, provide. Uh, the the woman has three primary things here too, and it's to affirm, receive, and nurture. To affirm, receive, and nurture what? Well, they're affirming, they're receiving, and they're nurturing the strength and leadership from worthy men. And that is ca- the the important phrase. Many, well, there's many important parts of this phrase, but from worthy men is really important. Going back to um, what I preface this as that a mature woman needs to have discernment. In what it approves. They have a clear biblical vision of mature masculinity. And a woman is going to delight in mature masculinity. Uh, just in the same way that a man will delight in mature femininity. And really, you think about this again, you can't be discerning without that standard by which you discern. So 
when we think about raising our kids, are we raising them to understand that that standard is the Bible? And are we giving them the tools to know that standard really, really well so that when they're out in the world, they can recognize mature womanhood and mature manhood amongst themselves? Now, it's important also, he, he brings up, we're not merely saying it's a response to whatever men offer up. That isn't what mature womanhood is. And, and it, you would, you'd maybe take that right away, that, we, that they're defining mature femininity merely as a response to whatever sinful men may happen to offer up. No, it's rooted in a commitment to Christ as Lord. It's discerning to what it approves. And therefore, even if a woman does not see mature masculinity and it's not in her presence, that doesn't mean uh, her femininity is destroyed. It remains intact because it's rooted in this desire for things to be as God intended them to be. And that applies then to single women as well. Just because they are not in a marital relationship where they are in the presence of physically and literally responding to um manhood, masculinity, whether it's immature or mature, the level of their desire and their their understanding for discerning what is true mature masculinity is not determined by that. You can be single and and have an excellent understanding for what mature masculinity is and a spirit of a disposition that would love to follow in that leadership in a godly way. Uh, and that would make you mature in your womanhood. So the key there is just recognizing that the natural expression, these are Piper's words, the natural expression of her womanhood will be uh, hindered by the immaturity of man in her presence. Oh, yeah. So, sorry, I don't know. I just skipped to that word. Sorry, not planning, right? Book, book, book study here. Basically, the idea there being, I just underlined it. Yeah, okay. So um, the expression might be hindered. But the disposition and level of her maturity is not. So if you're a woman and you're surrounded by a bunch of dopey guys who are not mature in their masculinity, that doesn't mean your your maturity is needs to be low as well. The expression of it just is going to be hindered. Which would be frustrating, you know? It's like it's like going back to that dancing, um, the dancing example. I'm just kinda coming up this on the cuff, but you know, if you think about a female who's a really good dancer dancing with a really bad male partner, the skill level of the female is not gone, but it's not able to be expressed, right? And I think that's a, an interesting way, too. You could have an incredible dancer, a female dancer, who's sitting on the sidelines, but their their disposition, their spirit of wanting to share in a in a dance of a high level, of a mature level, with uh, extravagant moves with a partner, and follow the lead of that partner is fully present, even when they're on the sidelines. That's sort of like our single woman. And if you're a woman in a marital relationship, but your your husband has an immature masculinity, that's almost like the the male partner dancer would be like me they're just not very good at dancing the female who is the expert dancer can still have a disposition to follow the lead of the or the leadership of that male dancer that is how it it has to work and so even though they might know more be better you can see the parallels here now their spirit of wanting to and desiring to follow in that leadership and to not crush that role or suppress that that key component I, I i'm using maybe poor words but piper kind of always is sort of reiterating this when questions come up about you know situations like this where essentially when people are asking well what if i'm a woman and i'm a way better dancer than the than the man right and and it he's not giving specifics on you can't do this or you you can you you should do this the specific part is the disposition to follow God's created order of how it's supposed to be, where the the male has the primary response, responsibility for leadership. That has nothing to do with saying the male has the is going to be the better dancer no matter what, but they are going to be the leader no matter what. And And so I think that's the key part is that if you're that female dancer that's way better, 
you you have to have a finesse about yourself that doesn't go against God's design because ultimately that's not going to help you. It's not. But and, and at the same time, going back to our discussion here, do not let that hinder you in your maturity. You can still be the excellent dancer waiting to respond appropriately to the um, mature leadership of the male, the male dancer, if we're using our examples here. For coming off the cuff, I feel like that was actually not a bad, bad example of what I'm trying to get by here. So these three tasks... Okay, it's important. I want to make the point that in order to recognize mature masculinity, you have to be rooted in that standard. I think I've gotten that across now. What does affirm mean? Affirm means that mature women advocate the kind of masculine, feminine complementarity that we are describing here. This is important to stress because there may be occasions when women have no interaction with men and yet are they are still mature. This is because femininity is a disposition to affirm the strength and leadership of worthy men, not just to experience it firsthand. It is also true, as we will see below, because there are unique feminine strengths and insights that women embody even before they can be given to any man. There's affirm. How about receive? Receive means that mature femininity feels natural and glad to accept the strength and leadership of worthy men. A mature woman is glad when a respectful, caring, upright man offers sensitive strength and provides a pattern of appropriate initiatives in their relationship. She does not want to reverse these roles. She is glad when he is not passive. She feels herself enhanced and honored and freed by his caring strength and servant leadership. And nurture. Nurture means that a mature woman senses a responsibility not merely to receive, but to nurture and strengthen the resources of masculinity. She is to be his partner and assistant. Um, she joins in the act of strength and shares in the process of leadership. She is, as Genesis 2.18 says, a helper suitable for him. This may sound paradoxical that she strengthens the strength she receives and that she refines and extends the leadership she looks for, but it is not contradictory or unintelligible. There are strengths and insights that women bring to a relationship that are not brought by men. I do not mean to imply by my definition of femininity that women are merely recipients in relation to men. Mature women bring nurturing strengths and insights that make men stronger and wiser and that make the relationship richer. So when I read Affirm, I think for whatever reason in my head, what I was kind of picturing is I picture that that woman in the public square, and maybe that's at, at your work, at the office, at school, in a meeting, whatever, and they, they want to they want to be an, they're an advocate for the proper masculine-feminine relationship. Meaning, even if they don't, if they have a chance to share their opinions or their views, or or we'll use the word legislate in those public square situations, they are people who want to um, advocate for God's design for male female relationships. That's kind of the critical thing first. Um, but and so they they have a spirit again, a disposition where that is what they want to see happen everywhere, but they, but especially also in their own personal lives. Even if they don't get to experience it firsthand, they are ready and waiting to experience it. They have an understanding of the biblical vision of mature male-female relationships. And, and so in the public square, they advocate for it. And in their private relationship, they desire it. And, it, and they hope to experience it maybe, or they, they are ready to experience it. And, and when they get that opportunity, they're able to receive it. And I think it's important here. I think we're, we're thinking now, okay, they're ready to affirm. Now they, they, they find a boyfriend or a husband. They get engaged. They get married. Now they get a chance to receive it. Well, what a, that's true, right? That is one, that's one example where they, they found a biblical, uh, a godly husband who is mature in his masculinity, and now they are really excited to freely um, uh, embrace this, the strength and leadership of a worthy male, not just any male, right? Uh, but what does this mean for the, the single woman or just in the public square as a married woman? And he kind of talks about this, how that the extent by which these principles apply do vary somewhat depending on the situation. We are all, uh, all women are, are out in the public square and they deal with men. Do they react and act the same way, affirming receiving and nurturing that they do with their husbands as they do with a boss or a co-worker 
or, you know, the team leader that happens to be a guy? Well, no, they don't. But the, not not to the same degree, but the principles do remain intact that they um, they interact with men in a way that is appropriate to God's design. So he he mentions, you know, putting up sorry, the the strongholds of defenses of so that you're not being tempted and and dragged down a road of adultery potentially for example you know in in treating another man like you would treat your husband that's obviously not in god's design um but the 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 relationship between man and woman isn't going to be necessarily different so i think when we think affirm receive and nurture those actually do apply on like micro scales in the public square to a certain degree and i think it's important that if you are especially if you are uh a single person that you recognize these are my opportunities to be mature in my womanhood um, in these in these times that I am interacting with men. And it's important if you're a married woman to not only try to do that, but also recognize the concrete differences between you interacting with a coworker who's a male and you interacting with your husband. It is going to be a deeper level, okay? So, oh, and he makes a note here in the book. This is page 49. I think this is kind of interesting. Ask this question. What about if someone asked, do, are, do you, are you saying women are weaker than men um, or smarter than men or more easily frightened than men or something like that? Here's what Piper says a good answer is. Women are weaker in some ways and men are weaker in some ways. Women are smarter in some ways and men are smarter in some ways. Women are more easily frightened in some kinds of circumstances and men are more easily frightened in other kinds of circumstances. It is very misleading to put negative values on the so-called weaknesses that each of us has by virtue of our sexuality. God intends for all the weaknesses that are characteristically masculine to call forth and highlight woman's strengths. And God intends for all the weaknesses that are characteristically feminine to call forth and highlight men's strengths. A person might who naively assumes that men are superior because of their kind of strength might consider these statistics from 1983. Six times more men than women are arrested for drug abuse. Ten times more men than women are arrested for drunkenness. 83% of serious crimes in America are committed by men, right? I point this out to show that boasting in either sex as superior to the other is a folly. Men and women, as God created them, are different in hundreds of ways. One helpful way to describe our equality and differences is this. Picture the so-called weaknesses and strengths of man and woman listed in two columns. If you could give a numerical value to each one, the sum at the bottom of both columns is going to be the same. Whatever different minuses and pluses are on each side of masculinity and femininity are going to balance out. And when you take those two columns from each side and lay them, as it were, on top of each other, God intends them to be the perfect complement to each other. So that when life together is considered, and I don't just mean married life, the weaknesses of man Manhood are not weaknesses, and the weaknesses of woman are not weaknesses. They are the complements that call forth different strengths in each other. Wow. So that's kind of interesting. And I think that is kind of it, it people jump to conclusions. I think when we we've already addressed definitions on words, and Piper was very careful in our last episode talking about leadership authority and how that can be misconstrued and here i think again we have the potential for someone to go well you're just saying that women are weaker or dumber or whatever or opposite women are weaker and more scared but men are dumber right and and i don't think we we should be drawing those conclusions we ought to recognize that men and women are equal in god's image but not equal in the sense of the particular strengths and weaknesses they bring to the table they are perfect complements of each other so they're not equal in the, in the sense that they're the exact same thing they're equal in value equal in value but different in characteristics um oh the next part <clears throat> oh i didn't really highlight i guess i sort of started diving into this next phrase uh, is in ways appropriate to women's differing relationships. So this is kind of what I was talking about, different, how do, how do women interact with men? This section was a little bit, it, it, I'm still like wrestling with what what it actually means and how to apply it. Because basically one of the things we're talking about here is like, what about a woman who is in a leadership role? And how does that work? Um, 
And he sort of presents this answer that there's these two criteriums, these two continuums, sorry, personal to non-personal and directive to non-directive. Basically saying that the relationship between or he's saying like all acts of relationships lie on a on a continuum they're either very personal or non-personal and the closer they get to the personal side the more inappropriate it becomes for women to exert direct influence so we have those two continuums personal non-personal direct and non-direct <clears throat> so what he's saying is is if it's a very personal relationship their leadership or their influence shouldn't be very direct. We can think of the example, the most personal relationship would be husband and wife, and the wife shouldn't be, shouldn't be direct in her influence of leadership or influence there. Um, essentially, so if a woman is in a place of leadership, I think what Piper's trying to say is it should be a non-personal, um, it should be a non-personal role if they're very directive. <clears throat> and so there, I, I think of like a principle, right? It's not a personal a personal relationship in that sense, and they have to be very directive. Um, the the one he brings up that he's like, I don't know if this would really be fitting, and he, and it seems like it is going to strain. He says strain the personhood of man and woman too far to be appropriate. You know, like <laughs> in other words, the, if there's a certain type of relationship that strains God's design for man and woman relating to one another, then it's not really appropriate. They bring up like a boss that's a woman with a male secretary. I think because the idea there, because <laughs> I would say, well, I don't, I can picture, I, it seems like, you know, this book was written a long time ago. So maybe like culturally too, nowadays, boss to secretary relationships aren't quite as um, personal as they used to be, you know, back in the 70s, 80s. And, and it was a lot different. Your secretary is doing so much of your personal work that now isn't happening. But the boss to secretary role, just for the example's sake, he's saying that's a very personal uh, relationship and it's also directive. So that's going to put a strain on the personhood of man and the personhood of woman. They're not, it's going to be a struggle for them to honor the biblical design for manhood and womanhood. So I don't think he gives like, he's not, he's not saying that that is, is sinful to be a female boss with a male secretary he's suggesting that what we need to look out for, not necessarily specifics, but the, where are we potentially putting strain on, on the personhood of man and the personhood of woman as it accords with God's design for both. That's what I think the principle that needs to be considered. Um, but back to the directive, if the the personal relationship, this way he says, if a woman's relation to man is very personal, so think husband wife, then the way she offers guidance will need to be non-directive. So if if my last statement, you're like, wait, I can't be direct to my husband, you know, um, in communication. I don't think that's what he means. It's guidance being directive. So the clearest example here is the marriage relationship. The Apostle Peter speaks of a good wife, a good wife's meek and tranquil spirit that can be very winsome to her husband. 1 Peter 3, 4. A wife who comes on strong with her advice will probably drive a husband into passive silence or into active anger. So that's not the same thing as saying a wife needs to be um, unclear in her communication. I think those are two different things. It's very important for a wife to be clear, direct in the sense that she is clear to her husband communicating how she's feeling, but the, but directive in guidance is completely different. This is kind of going back to picture that dance relationship again. If the female dancer knows what needs to happen and wants to then offer guidance to the male, they need to do so in a way that does not strain the relationship, uh, the responsibility of leadership for the man in that dance role. That that needs to be given meekly a tr with a tranquil spirit, not as not in the same way that the leadership would be, right? We don't want to strain that. So that's a helpful way of, of thinking about it is the really good female dancer can't just assume the role <coughs> that the male is supposed to and become the male dancer. They have to offer guidance in a way that is non-direct. Okay, hopefully that made some sense. Okay, so now I want to launch into finish this show with talking about the biblical vision of complementarity. So this, obviously, I think is the focus of the rest of this book as well. So he doesn't really give a lot of details here. He mentions that the detailed exegetical argumentation for this vision is going to be sketched out later. 
Um, but just in kind of, you know, I'll use his words to sort of summarize the key idea. First of all, this is the way that God intended it to be before there was sin in the world. And it was like this, sinless man full of love in his tender, strong leadership in relation to woman and sinless woman full of love and her joyful, responsive support for man's leadership. No belittling from the man, no groveling from the woman, two intelligent, humble, God-entranced beings living out in beautiful harmony, their unique and different responsibilities. Sin has distorted this purpose at every level. We are not sinless anymore, but we believe that the recovery of mature manhood and womanhood is, is possible by the power of God's Spirit through faith in his promises and obedience to his word. And then sort of talks about how what this looks like in the home and how it's the same for in the church. In the home, we have this biblical headship, which is the husband having a divine calling to take responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership protection and provision, all those elements as defined in the way we just have gone over in these last few shows. Biblical submission, what that looks like. It's a divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership, to help carry it through according to her gifts. This is the way of joy. And he Piper brings out that this this scenario is going to make you the most satisfied and God the most glorified. God loves his people. He loves his glory. He wants people to follow his idea of marriage. Uh, which is sketched out. It mentions some texts here: Genesis two eighteen to twenty four, Proverbs five fifteen through nineteen, thirty one ten through thirty one, Mark ten two through twelve, Ephesians five twenty one through thirty three, Colossians three eighteen through nineteen, and First Peter three one through seven. Okay, and the next part there kind of basically summarizes saying in this vision is similar for the church in terms of leadership and submission, authority submission. And then he kind of comes down, he says, this, I, I starred this after, after suggesting this, basically saying, some people think there's a better way to do things in the church, to mobilize for missions, but we, we don't. We think the biblical calling is the way it should be. And finally kind of ends with, what's the real problem? Is the real problem, remember, this book is a, quote, a response to evangelical feminism. What's the issue here? And he says, the devastating sin is not the so-called woman's movement, but the lack of spiritual leadership by men at home and in the church. Satan has achieved an amazing tactical victory by dis- disseminating, sorry, di- disseminating the notion that the summons for male leadership is born of pride and fallenness, when in fact pride is precisely what prevents spiritual leadership. The spiritual aimlessness and weakness and lethargy and loss of nerve among men is the major issue, not the upsurge of interest in women's ministries. Pride and self-pity and fear and laziness and confusion are luring many men into self-protecting, self-exalting cocoons of silence. And to the degree that this makes room for women to take more leadership, it is sometimes even endorsed as a virtue. But I believe that deep down, the men and the women know better. Where are the men with a moral vision for their families, a zeal for the house of the Lord, a magnificent commitment to the advancement of the kingdom? an articulate dream for the mission of the church, and a tender-hearted tenacity to make it real. I, I mentioned this, I think, either one show ago or two shows ago, but basically how clear it is when you now have looked at how this dance is supposed to operate between mature manhood and womanhood, that if you have a bunch of crappy male dancers available, what is a mature woman dancer supposed to do? And I think the point perhaps being made is the lack of leadership from men is is the true sin and perhaps even causing this, this upsurge in the so-called feminist leadership movement. And we don't have, as men, we shouldn't be looking at women going, that's wrong. We should be looking at ourselves and going, are we not providing them with a mature masculinity for them to recognize as worthy and biblical and follow in a way that's freeing to them. Um, and, and that's huge. You know, maybe we need to go back and take dance lessons, so to speak. Uh, and, and, and he does identify a few things, whether it's confusion. I think on the part where, you know, little young boys today 
are certainly falling into that category of confusion because they're not being shown by the world or by the people around them what mature masculinity looks like. And so some elements of mature masculinity have been construed and distorted and seen as evil and to not pursue those things. And really, they need to be displayed appropriately, defined correctly, and then allowed you know, young people, young boys to go, that's what I need to aspire to be. But since they're not, they don't. So the confusion can lead to no development, no development of maturity. Um, laziness, lethargy uh, can too. When we see um, that is definitely a tendency, the, the man who just wants to sit and watch Netflix or scroll their phone or uh, watch football or, or, do, or just be completely not unengaged with the important things. And maybe that's a better way of saying it even as well, that they, they don't want to engage with things that are seemingly you know, too emotional and too personal because they're, they want to be a man by the world standards, which means just shelter talking about things that are important. There are definitely men who are out there like that as well and to, to a fault. To, to talk about important things is not a feminine characteristic, but the secular world, I think, has presented it that way. So men who enjoy talking about key issues and, and discussing them using words, uh, using words is seen as being feminine. Men are supposed to be quiet and, you know, quiet, strong, and tough. And I think that's kind of come out to be like men who talk too much are, have feminine qualities. That shouldn't be the case, right? The, the, the content of what they're saying should determine it more, really. But um, we, we need to shy away from that. It's, it's, it's godly for uh, young men to discuss theological topics, to discuss leadership, to discuss women, to discuss views on those things, to grow in that way. And so there's certainly this, again, distortion of what the, the secular presentation of what it means to be a man has, has actually created less manly men. That's really the result. We have less manly men. And by manly men, I'm saying we have less mature masculine as God defines it, men. Manly as God defines it. And God defines manly different than the world. But the, because of how the world's defined manly, we have less manly men in our world. And the result of that is that the, the, the rise in the feminist movement, essentially, because, hey, we, we, we even have good, I think, good-spirited and good-hearted women who, who might desire simply to further the mission of the church. And without men providing that leadership, what are they to do? I, I think I, in some ways, sympathize with that. Okay, so finally, and I thought about just reading these all off. Um, the closing challenge to men and women. It is pretty pretty dramatic. These fifteen points. Uh, might maybe I'll just make a show on it separately, separate clip, so I don't just we don't end with this. But I would encourage you if you don't have this book to buy this book. And I think there's what it is is fifteen callings, and. 1 through 8, 12 through 13, so basically 10 of them are identical for both men and women. And then there are some special ones for uh, females and special ones for males. And I feel like if you are a young parent or someone you don't know what to pray for for your kid, it would be these 15 things. And if you want to provide them with a clear vision, like, look, this is, this is what we hope for your life. These are 15 things that, that you would want them to be absorbed in and reading in regularly. I mean, number one is that all of your life in whatever calling be devoted to the glory of God. Number two, that the promises of Christ be trusted so fully that peace and joy and strength fill your soul to overflowing. Number three, that this fullness of God overflow in daily acts of love so that people might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Number four, that you be men of the book who love and study and obey the Bible in every area of its teaching, that meditation on biblical truth be the source of hope and faith, that you continue to grow in understanding through all the chapters of your life, never thinking that study and growth are only for others. 
that you be men or women of prayer, number five, so that the word of God will be opened to you, so the power of faith and holiness will descend upon you, that your spiritual influence may increase at home and at church and in the world. I guess I'm reading through all of them. won't take me that long. Number six, that you may be men or women who have a deep grasp of the sovereign grace of God, which undergirds all these spiritual processes, and that you be deep thinkers about the doctrines of grace and even deeper lovers of these things. Number seven, that you be totally committed to ministry, whatever your specific calling, that you not fritter away your time on excessive sports and recreation or unimportant hobbies or aimless diddling in the garage. And for women, it has soaps, (laughs) soap operas, women's magazines or unimportant hobbies or shopping, but that you redeem the time for Christ and his kingdom. And number eight, that if you are single, you exploit your singleness to the full in devotion to God the way Jesus and Paul and Mary Slessor and Amy Carmichael did, and not be paralyzed by the desire to be married. And then we get on to the ones that are unique to men and women. So number nine for the, the women, that if you are married, you creatively and intelligently and sincerely support the leadership of your husband as deeply as obedience to Christ will allow that you encourage him in his God-appointed role as head, that you influence him spiritually, primarily through your fearless tranquility and holiness and prayer. Number nine for the men, that if you are married, you love your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that you be humble, a humble, self-denying, upbuilding, happy spiritual leader, that you consistently grow in grace and knowledge so as to never quench the aspirations of your wife for spiritual advancement, that you cultivate tenderness and strength, a pattern of initiative and a listening ear, and that you accept the responsibility of provision and protection in the family, however you and your wife share the labor. By the way, these are things you could pray over your son or daughter when they're young and talk about with them when they're young. It's okay. <laughs> I think that's better. They should have a vision ahead. This is what I want to be as a husband or a wife. Number 10 for women, that if you have children, you accept responsibility with your husband or alone if necessary to raise up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, children who hope in the triumph of God, sharing with your husband the teaching and discipline they need and giving them the special attachment they crave from you, as well as that special nurturing touch and care that you alone are fitted to give. I love how powerful that is for the moms. And number 10 for the dad, that if you have children, you accept primary responsibility in partnership with your wife or as a single parent to raise up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, children who hope in the triumph of God, that you establish a pattern of teaching and discipline that is not solely dependent on the church or school to impart Bible knowledge and spiritual values to the children, and that you give your children the time and attention and affection that communicates the true nature of our Father in heaven. Dads who are present, that's a challenge, right? The time and attention and affection that communicates to them the true nature of God and women giving the special nurturing touch and care that only they as a mom could give. That's why it's so critical and so disappointing when you see families that don't have a mom or dad. That's not going to be the same experience. Don't listen to the secular world that says, well, two dads is the same thing for these kids. No, it's not. The mom gives a special nurturing touch that only a woman can give. And the dad, only the dad can, tr- can, can display that true nature of the father in heaven. 11, uh, for the women, that you not assume that secular employment is a greater challenge or a better use of your life than the countless opportunities of service and witness in the home, the neighborhood, the community, the church, and the world. That you not only pose the question, career or full-time homemaker, but that you ask just as seriously, full-time career or freedom for ministry. That you ask, which would be greater for the kingdom, to work for someone who tells you what to do to make his or her business prosper, or to be God's free agent dreaming your own dream about how your time and your home and your creativity could make God's business prosper, and that in all this you make your choices not on the basis of secular trends or upward lifestyle expectations, that's huge, but on the basis of what will strengthen the faith of the family and advance the cause of Christ. Number 11 for the men. That you not assume advancement and peer approval in your gainful employment as being the highest values in life, but that you ponder the eternal significance of faithful fatherhood and time spent with your wife. That you repeatedly consider the new possibilities at each stage of your life for maximizing your energies for the glory of God in ministry. 
that you pose the question often, is our family molded by the culture or, or do we embody the values of the kingdom of God? That you lead the family in making choices, not on the basis of secular trends or upward lifestyle expectations, but on the basis of what will strengthen the faith of the family and advance the cause of Christ. I need to talk on that number 11 one. There's, there's so much built in there. First of all, I think when he says, don't assume advancement and peer approval in your gainful employment as the highest values in life, we are all sort of stuck in the rat race. And I don't think that necessarily just, I mean, a, a lot of us, could, we could argue, are just kind of subconsciously, even as Christians, sort of saying we define our success by maybe how much money we have, kind of our rank in life, uh, what our house is like, where we live, you know, the status, the general status. And, and, and if you don't care necessarily about your income or your money, it's something else that you're pointing to. You know, maybe for me, it's um, status as an athlete. Maybe for uh, um, <laughs> maybe for my twin brother, it's you know the amount of cattle that he one day will have, or or acreage that he owns on his hobby farm, or what have you. Uh, but I think we all are tempted as men to, because we're built in, in 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 a way that like we want to have a thing, a passion, an outlet that we really express our um, and, and define our success by. We, we, we really crave that. And so to, to throw that out, that's not, the, that's not how we define value in our life. That's, that's the first critical part. Um, but but in by throwing that off, being free to go, whoa, the eternal significance of faithful fatherhood and being a husband are much greater. So spending time with the child so that they can see the true nature of the father in heaven versus spending more time training as an athlete or working to make more money right? Recognizing the trade-off and which one is more important. Huge there. Um, and then I like this, that you repeatedly consider. And and the next one, that you pose the question often. Those two phrases to me, we have here an example, maybe the sports psychologist coming out of me, but someone who is always constantly self-analyzing their life. We don't do that. But self-analyzing, am I, what am I doing here? Why am I doing it? How am I doing Okay, what am I doing? Why am I doing? How am I doing? That self-analyzation skill, we are used to that as, as athletes. We, are, we reflect on the year's training. We reflect on the races we did. We make adjustments. We analyze how it affected our bodies. We analyze plans, structures. We make changes. We adapt so that we can be better. And in this sense, we ought to do the same thing. We ought to consider this by the standard of, um, as he says, are we constantly being molded by the values of the kingdom of God? Are we headed towards a place that is strengthening the faith, advancing the cause of Christ? That's the, that is the thing we are self-analyzing about. But to just self-analyze in general, I don't think is an, an activity that many people really like to partake in. And like I said, do you repeatedly consider the new possibilities at each stage of your life for maximizing your energies for the glory of God and ministry? Maybe I just really like that because the definition of success for me is maximizing your potential, giving 100% effort to maximize your potential for the glory of God. So this just hits a home run right in me. It's just, it's just right there, right at the heart of how I feel the purpose of my life is. But to consider at every stage of life, am I maximizing the possibilities for God's glory? As a single person with, with no wife or no kids, am I maximizing this unique chapter of life to glorify God? Now that I am married, but I don't have kids, am I doing what I can with my partner to maximize things for the glory of God that I won't be able to do when I'm 70 and a grandparent and I won't be able to do when I'm 45 and I have three high school teenagers? Am I maximizing it? And then thinking about that stage. When I am that 40-year-old dad or mom or 45 and I've got teens in the house, how can I maximize things for the glory of God there that I couldn't do when I was 20 and I wasn't married? I mean, you can think about the, the limitless possibilities there that would occur and come up, but do we often think that way? I don't think so. I think, I think generally in America, we think of like our life is this grand trajectory that we are constantly, constantly putting away and storing away for that magical retirement. Like that's the, that is the pinnacle of life is retirement. When you, when you can finally exhale and you just get to live off the fatted calf. Some people look at life like that. Some people also look at life the opposite where they're like, no, no, the 20s 
are the best years of life. So we need to do everything we can at that stage of life because we're, our bodies are the best. We have freedom. We have capability. It's just just live the sprinter van life and bike hundreds of miles every day, go on hikes, you know, stay up late, live it up when you're 20 and 30 because you won't be able to do that after. And some people, I think, kind of like don't have a vision at all. They're kind of going through life and allowing these chapters to come at them. They're just hitting them in the face. Oh, crap, now I have a baby. Oh, crap, now I have another baby. Oh, crap, now I got to pay bills. Oh, man, I I do want to upgrade my house. Oh, I do want to refinance my mortgage. Oh, no, now my kids are in middle school and they're getting in trouble. Oh, no, now they're starting to think about college. Everything is just hitting them in the head. They're just kind of like... um, constantly feeling stressed about the new challenges in life. They have no time or ability to process and go, what could I be doing to most glorify God at this stage of life? And then they sort of get to their 60 years old and they're like, what did I even do with the last 40 years of my life? What did I even do with them? And so we, I think we do need to, we need to be intentional. We need to have a basis for those intentions rooted in scripture. And then the creative vision that is unique to each of us Maybe we are going to be someone who is trying to travel the world like a skiologian and and do crazy ski races. Maybe we are set on setting up our careers that we could be a a homeschool mom who um, wants to contribute writing curriculum and help out with other kids in a a community. Um, Maybe we do have a vision for when we're 65 or 70 and we've amassed an amount of wealth that that's when we want to go to Ethiopia and build a church. You know, I'm just like throwing things out there, but... The point is that every chapter of life has the potential to be, um, to be used to advance the kingdom. Uh, okay, then we have a couple more that are identical. Number 12, that you step back and, and with your wife, if you are married, plan the various forms of your life's ministry and chapters. So that's kind of what we're talking about too, right? Planning with your wife. Chapters are divided by various things. Age, strength, singleness, marriage, employment, children at home, children in college, grandchildren, retirement, etc. No chapter has all the joys. That's important to remember. (laughs) The pinnacle of life is not retirement. Finite life is a series of trade-offs. Finding God's will and living for the glory of Christ to the full in every chapter is what makes it a success. Not whether it reads like somebody else's chapter or whether it has in it what only another chapter will bring. Wow. Let me read that again. Finding God's will and living for the glory of Christ to the full. That is the thing that determines if you are successful in that chapter of life. That's what makes it a success. It is not whether it just looks like someone else's chapter or if it has what the last chapter had. Ajay, what's your deal? Can we get in under under an hour? I think we can. Number 13, that you develop a wartime mentality and lifestyle, that you never forget that life is short, that billions of people hang in the balance of heaven and hell every day, that the love of money is spiritual suicide, that the goals of upward mobility, nicer clothes, cars, houses, vacations, food, hobbies, are a poor and dangerous substitute for the goals of living for Christ with all your might and maximizing your joy and ministry to people's needs. Number 14, uh, this is slightly different for man, men and male and female, but a lot of the same language. So here's for the females, that in all your relationships with men, not just in marriage, you seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit in applying the biblical vision of manhood and womanhood, that you develop a style and demeanor that does justice to the unique role God has given to man to feel responsible for gracious leadership in relation to women, a leadership which involves elements of protection and provision and a pattern of initiative, that you think creatively and with cultural sensitivity, just as he must do, in shaping the style and setting the tone of your interaction with men. And for men, that you, in all your relationships with women, not just in marriage, seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit in applying the biblical vision of manhood and womanhood. Same thing. But now it looks a little bit different, right? That you develop a style and demeanor that expresses your God-given responsibility for humble strength and leadership and for self-sacrificing provision and protection that you think creatively and with cultural sensitivity, just as she must do in shaping the style and setting the tone of your interaction with women. Number 15, for women, that you see the biblical guidelines for what is appropriate and inappropriate for men and women, not as arbitrary constraints on freedom, but as wise and gracious prescriptions for how to discover the true freedom of God's ideal of complementarity, that you not measure your potential by the few roles withheld, but by the countless roles offered. 
that you look to the loving God of Scripture and dream about the possibilities of your service to Him with the following list as possibilities for starters. And it has some lists, uh, possibilities. 15 for men starts the same. That you see the biblical guidelines for what is appropriate and inappropriate for men and women, not as a license for domination or bossy passive passivity, uh, but as a call to servant leadership that thinks in terms of responsibilities, not rights. That you see these principles as wise and gracious prescriptions for how to discover the true freedom of God's ideal of complementarity. That you encourage the fruitful engagement of women in the countless ministry roles that are biblically appropriate and deeply needed. Okay, so there it is, the challenge, the call. Now you're going to want to type those out, print them, put them above the baby's crib, um, speak them into your sixth grader's life constantly. That is what I hope you you have. Pray over them that that's what your kids become. Pray that it's what you become too. There's lots of things in there that, that hit on us. But I think if you were able to follow those 15 guidelines for your whole life, just imagine the fruit that would be produced for the kingdom. Um, that's what kind of struck me as I read those things. All right, we went over. Every episode seems to get just a little bit longer. That's not good, I know. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, chapter two is a bunch of questions posed. I don't think it's probably valuable to go through every single one, but I'm going to pick a few that um, stuck out to me. Uh, you should be getting this book, though. You should be reading through it, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This is your call. Just consider it this part of your training, men and women, to as as whether you're a pastor or whether you're a mom or a dad or if you're a single man or woman. That is all of us. Okay, this isn't like something that is, um, you know, just for people in a certain secular sphere or just for people in a certain Christian church sphere or a certain life stage. This is material for every single person, really at every single stage of life. So hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.